The material presented in this podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. For legal issues that arise, the listener should consult legal counsel. Welcome to Works For Me, an ongoing conversation about employment law and how it works for and possibly against those it is meant to serve. We hope to enlighten and inform anyone affected by employment law, and if you work or employ those who do, that means you. Works For Me is a production of the North Carolina Bar Association's Labor and Employment Section. I'm Will Oden, an employment attorney based in Wilmington, North Carolina. With me today, as always, are fellow employment attorneys, Nina Parati and Grant Osborne. Hi there, Will. Hey, Will. Hey, Nina. Hi, Grant. (laughs) Good to see you you again. Always good to see you. So, very briefly, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Grant. Oh, gosh. There's so much to say, of course, but I'll be brief. Uh, I'm an employment lawyer. I practice in Asheville, North Carolina. Born and bred in Charlotte, but I've been in North Carolina essentially my entire working life. And I practice employment law, primarily representing employers. Nina, what about you? Sure. I always love to talk about myself and a challenge to be brief, but I will. Uh, My name is Nina Parati, and I also practice employment law, but I represent employees. Uh, I represent them behind the scenes and helping them navigate a difficult uh, relationship with an employer or some challenge that they're facing in the workplace. And sometimes, when necessary, I surface and uh, bring uh, claims against the employer for violating any number of uh, federal statutes and uh, state statutes that pertain to uh, the workplace and uh, protect the rights of employees. And by that, she means allegedly violating. Yes, alleged. I will always use alleged. And uh, and I will say this, my my passion is empowering employees. Um, It is one of the most important relationships they have in their life. Uh, and I want to do everything in my, uh, that I have uh, in my power to make that relationship work for them. And that's very important. I have yet to meet an employer without employees. So mm-hmm. it's all part of, part of the same mix. Well, one of the things I think we can do for our audience is to help them understand whether they can fire or be fired for certain things. <laughs> right. So along those lines, let's do a deeper dive into some of the topics we discussed during our inaugural, inaugural podcast. Uh, that being namely unlawful employee termination. So by way of brief background, Grant, talk about what at-will employment actually means. Sure, and uh, I'll be brief. I know when you hear a lawyer say that, you become worried, but I'll I'll put it as briefly as I can. Employment at will, and I'm sure Nina will tell me if I get it wrong. Um, (laughs) The law of employment at will in North Carolina is that an employer may fire or discharge an employee for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason, so long as not for an unlawful reason or a reason that violates public policy. How's that? Well, I think that's a succinct, um, I think that's a succinct summary and I will expand on it a little further. 
Um, so uh, when you say no reason, you can have an arbitrary reason, a ridiculous reason. I, I'm firing you because you're wearing a red shirt today and I don't like red shirts. That's perfectly acceptable. What's not acceptable is to fire someone because of their membership in a protected class, such as firing someone because you're motivated by them being a woman or being older or being disabled or being African-American. Uh, but um, also, um, if you engage in protected activity, if you complain about discrimination, if you complain about a public health issue, you believe that the employer is endangering the public um, by their conduct, that also is another reason why you cannot terminate an employee. And I'll say one other thing. We've been talking about termination a lot, but it really is that the employer cannot engage in any adverse employment action against an employer um, against an employee because of these things so an adverse action most traditionally is termination but this also applies if they demote the employee if they transfer the employee to a less desirable job if they strip the employee of important duties and responsibilities that define their position those are all adverse employment actions that may not be entered into uh, if they're motivated by an unlawful purpose. That, that's all correct. And one point I would add, too, to your point that uh, employers can fire somebody for wearing a certain kind of clothing they may not like. To your point, employers are uh, legally entitled to act for irrational reasons. There's nothing unlawful about that. But I'm the first to say, if you do that, you're inviting scrutiny as to what the real reason may be if you act for a reason that makes no sense. If right. you act in a way that makes no sense to somebody else who's looking at the decision, that may cause someone else for example, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, to inquire as to what the real reason was if the offered reason is simply unreasonable or appears not to make any sense. And actually, that's a term of art in our world as employment lawyers, and we call it pretext. Okay, so if the employer says, I'm firing, um, firing this person for performance, and it turns out that person is a superstar, and the only thing that's changed since the... the uh, the employer uh, decided to terminate the employee uh, is that the employer uh, employee engaged in protected activity, like complained about discrimination on behalf of his or um, himself or someone else, then um, that will be shown to be uh, an unlawful reason, even if the employer had a legitimate excuse. Right, uh, I, I, would agree, I would agree. Normally, uh, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, but when it comes to employment, consistency is a virtue. It's important to be as consistent as one can be because if employers are inconsistent for reasons that appear to make no sense, they simply invite a third party to come in and perhaps attribute to the employer a reason that may be unlawful. Well, you know, it's really interesting that you say that, Graham, because I'll give you a classic example. My colleagues like to joke that Nina can settle a case even if, even if it's proven that the employee has stolen from the employer, right? They think that I have very good negotiating skills. Well, I did have a case where the employee stole from the employer, and I did negotiate a settlement where the employer ended up paying my client money. So there was Why? some other dirt, I assume, <laughs> on the employer. There had well, you done. talked about consistency, right? Well, my, right. my employee worked at a fast food place, and they were all allowed to take food home. It was against the rules, but the supervisor always looked, overlooked it and allowed the employees to take food home. Except for my client, after she complained that she was being sexually harassed, suddenly then the rules changed for her. They were inconsistent, 
and they terminated my client after she took food home. It was a violation of public policy, uh, of the company policy, but unfortunately it was not one that was enforced, consistently enforced by the employer, and she ended up being able to prove that the real motivating factor was the fact that she had complained about sexual harassment, not the violating of the company policy. So in any event, um, let's talk a little bit about um, let's talk a little bit about Title uh, Seven, mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, we can talk about um, protected categories, which we mentioned. Um, how would you go about eva uh, evaluating a uh, Title Seven case, Grant? Sure, I think in the context of our discussion, we we began with employment at will, saying that there are exceptions, one of which is termination for unlawful reasons, and I'm sure you'd agree that Title Seven is one of the uh, typical reasons that are cited as unlawful reasons for firing somebody because that law prohibits discrimination based upon race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. So I guess if, if the question is how would I, how would I want to evaluate such a claim or help, help an employer to evaluate a claim sure. for that? Well first you would, if, if an employer is considering firing an employee, one of the first questions one would ask the employer is is there evidence that may suggest that the reason is one of those prohibited reasons? Not necessarily what the real reason is, but is there any evidence that suggests that the reason may be race, color, religion, sex, or national origin? So to your point, if the employer wishes to fire an employee ostensibly for violating a rule, but that rule is not applied uniformly, it's applied more harshly on certain employees because of their, here's the list again, race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, that could be a problem. There may be a real legitimate reason for firing an employee, but if the evidence suggests that the reason was not legitimate, but rather violates one of those particular criteria, then that's a problem. Right, and you see, you know, you really see parallels to that, to Title VII, under its counterparts, the Americans with Disability Act and the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. They really essentially provide the same thing. That mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in those particular cases, the ADEA, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, protects employees from being discriminated against uh, for being uh, over the age of 40. Uh, if someone has an age-based animus... That's remarkably young, though. Don't you agree? I, in this I, day and time, 40? I, I completely agree, but that is the arbitrary benchmark. The 40 is the... 40 is the new, 60 is the new 40. We hope uh, so. Yes. But um, that is the benchmark that the federal law has established. And um, if there's discrimination there for the, because the person is older, that could be a problem. I want to point out a point, though, because sometimes employers do make decisions because um, based on age, not primarily motivated by age, but motivated by economic concerns because there are two people that can do the job and they can do them equally well, but the younger person commands a lower salary. Right. And right. that salary actually is, appeal that lower salary is appealing to the employer. If the employer can show that the reason why they chose the younger person was motivated by their salary and not by their age because they have some age-based animus and think that the younger person would do the job better because she's younger uh, and have misconceptions about what being young means, uh, being more energetic or being more tech-savvy or whatever it is that may be a misconception about age and ability. It is mm -hmm. okay for the employer to make an economic decision uh, based upon the younger person commanding a lower salary. So that's one misconception. I actually was thinking about another, um, right. Grant, and tell me what you think. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of employees who come to see me and say, you know, 
Uh, Ms. Parati, I really was the victim of a hostile work environment. And I have to laugh because at one point or another, we've all been in a hostile work environment, right? We have an obnoxious boss, an abusive you know, um, supervisor or even colleague, and it is hostile. It's, it's, it's unfair, but it is not hostile as that term is defined under the law. Right, I would agree. People have come to use that term as something of a mantra. They've heard the term so many times. Yes. I think that the law prohibits a hostile work environment, which is not true. The law does not prohibit hostility in the workplace. It instead and prohibits hostility, hostility if that hostility is motivated by that person's membership in a protected class. Right, which gets to somebody's gender. intentions, right? It gets right. to what's motivating, to use your word, what's motivating somebody, what was the reason for the, for the as you right. call it, the adverse employment decision. But a lot of people have this notion that the law dictates fairness. It requires that people be treated fairly. That is false. The law does not require fairness. Well, maybe it should, and that's another conversation. Uh, God help us if the law said, thou shalt be fair. But all the law that we're discussing uh, does is prohibit certain kinds of discrimination based on certain criteria. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, well, I'll, I'll say this. I, I disagree to um, a certain extent, which is that um, fairness and the law often do go hand in hand. And when they don't, sometimes the tipping point is the employer actions um, that do denote fairness. I'll give you an example. And by I, the way, if I'm interrupting, I'm not recommending that employers be unfair. That's profoundly unwise for all kinds of reasons, so I don't want to be misunderstood about that. I'm not referring to that, Graham, but I actually am referring to a situation where the employer does something that's just right on the cusp, and the tipping point becomes fairness or unfairness. And I'll give you an example, because this is a kind of employee who comes to my door, um, and she's motivated primarily by the unfairness, not by the discrimination. Right. I had an employee who worked for a major company who was terminated while she was laying in the hospital bed after she had just given birth and was holding a newborn in her arms and got an, a phone call from an employer saying, by the way, you're part of the, the next round of layoffs. Thanks so much. Oh, and uh, happy, uh, happy uh, birth so of your child. So the employer fired her while she's literally in the bed with a newborn in her arms. Yes, and so it may so be... So there's a better way to have done that. I, I think so. And sometimes when I speak to large groups, um, mixed groups of um, employers and employees, which I often do before um, the American Bar Association, for example, I tell them that action in and of itself may not have been unlawful. She may have been legitimately part of a RIF, a reduction in force, sure. and she just happened to be uh, uh, about to give birth to a baby and, and did. But... It was that reason, that callousness, that insensitivity and the timing of conveying that unhappy news that actually encouraged her to come into my office. Sure. And then it turned out that she was indeed being discriminated against on the basis of her pregnancy and, and, and uh, her status as a new mother. But we never would have gotten there had the employer just done the right thing and handled that situation fairly, even though fairly is not um, so, a criteria that it, uh, it, the employers are required to adhere to. And that makes perfect sense. So I would be the first to agree that even though the law does not dictate fairness, that wise employers will treat people with respect and uh, treat them as human beings. If they do that, they're probably going to get it right most of the time and probably can avoid, I'll, I was going to say frivolous, that's too harsh, can, can avoid meritless claims of unlawful discrimination. Or even borderline ones where the employer, uh, employee would otherwise be willing to put it behind her and move on. So whether a claim's valid or not, walk us through, if you don't mind, guys, how, how an EEOC charge based on Title VII typically plays out. 
Right. Uh, one observation, I wasn't in a dentist as she wants, but the first thing I tell my clients about the EOC process is it's easy and it's free. And that tells employers a lot right there. If employees or applicants or former employees, right, think they've suffered unlawful discrimination, if they wish to file a charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, what we call the EOC, it's easy to do so and claim that the applicant or the former employee or the current employee has suffered unlawful discrimination. It's a very simple process. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I would say this. Um, I, I take my, um, if I have the luxury of time, if I don't have a statute of limitations concern that's driving my um, decisions um, and I have the luxury of some time, I take my representation of the client in steps. The first thing I do is send an, uh, a letter. Uh, an invitation to negotiate letter, and I lay out the facts as I see them and the potential claims that give rise um, as a result of those facts. And then I invite the employer to negotiate. Because frankly, the employer, I would imagine, would, would prefer that I do not file my claim with the EEOC. And there's some leverage there in um, attempting to settle sure, the case confidentially and early on in the process. And then if that doesn't work, then of course the next step is to file with the EEOC and that's how you preserve your client's rights to ultimately sue in court. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like Monopoly, you do not pass the EEOC and you will not collect $200 unless you first right. go through the EEOC. And the, and the case needs to be there for the requisite amount of time, 180 days, before you can ask for a release of jurisdiction. Where certain statutes are concerned, right? Like Title VII, the Age Discrimination Act, and the ADA, for example. Right, right. So um, in any event, there are opportunities all along the way to settle a case. One of them is pre-filing with the EEOC. Then the EEOC process itself also offers up the opportunity for mandatory mediation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and during that process, sometimes cases do get settled, uh, especially if you, get, uh, if you are um, blessed with a skilled and adept mediator. Absolutely. Shout out to Vanessa Mollett. <laughs> <They're, they're, laughs> right. She's wonderful. And, and there are others that really are as well. So that's a factor um, to consider as well. Well, assuming the case does settle, uh, what should a settlement agreement typically include? Well, I like to think um, that in addition to what um, what should be included, I like to think about what should not be included. So um, I would say a release of our budding in, though. Yes, uh, <laughs> I, I would say that grant grants clients are looking for uh, confidentiality. They're looking for a release of all claims. They're looking for um, non-disparagement clauses. They're looking to comply with the law and make sure that the uh, contract uh, uh, appropriately advises the employee of the rights that they have and still have even if they sign and I'm looking for what the settlement agreement should not contain and that is I don't want liquidated damages clauses which require a set amount of money for the employee to pay if they violate even a technical violation of their obligations under the settlement agreement I'm not looking for the I'm looking for the employer who tries to sneak in a non-compete where none existed before that is going to require them to pay more money if they want that on the table. This could be helpful, though. Yes. Uh, I'm <laughs> looking for uh, a um, no-we-hire clause. A lot of employers want no-we-hire clauses in there. I certainly understand why. It saves them from exposure to liability if an employee who complains about discrimination applies for a job again and the employer turns them down, then the employee has a new claim, retaliatory failure to hire based upon um, the fact that she had previously opposed discrimination. But if the no rehire provision is too broad and you have a very large employer uh, and um, 
uh, and they want to include all of their affiliates, subsidiaries, and everyone else, you could have something that sort of functions as a miniature non-compete because uh, the employee is not only prohibited from applying to, for another job with that particular employer, but all of their all of the tentacles that go out uh, and all of the other companies that that employer has been involved in. So those are the, some of the things I look at. Great. Now, we only have a few more minutes, but we've already talked about three, or excuse me, several improper grounds for firing employees, protected classes, protected activity. But Grant, touch on real briefly for our audience, what is protected concerted activity and what does that mean in like the social media context? Sure, very, very briefly, there's this law out there called the National Labor Relations Act that most people, if they think of this at all, think of it in the context of employers that have labor unions. Uh, that's not the most important part of it, though, for most employers, because it applies essentially to all employers. And it, by that, I mean people, employers that have two or more employees, and provides in a very small nutshell that employees have the right to engage in what's called protected concerted activity for the purpose of engaging in mutual aid or protection. That's the legalese of it. The idea is that employees have the right to talk to each other about their working conditions in an effort to improve those working conditions. So employers, in the short time we have left, need to be aware that there is this federal law out there that does give employees the right to talk at least with each other, and maybe others, but to talk at least with each other about their working conditions in the hope of improving those conditions. And these days, with the miracle of technology, the easiest way for many employees to do that is on social media. They can go on Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter and trash the company and talk about their bad conditions. And before employers uh, unthinkingly fire somebody or engage in, uh, Nina used the term, adverse employment action because of that, they better think about that because some employees may well be protected by this federal law and have the right to file what's called an unfair labor practice charge with the National Labor Relations Board. Woo, that's a lot of information, but that answers the question. <laughs> well, I certainly have learned a lot today uh, and enjoy both of you being here. And we would ask uh, our audience to continue to tune in as we continue to record yes, these podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for future podcast topics, please let the North Carolina Bar Association Labor and Employment Section know. So thank you both for being here. Thanks, thank you. Thanks, this Nina. Was, this Enjoyed was it. a lot of fun. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. We hope that you have enjoyed this edition of Works For Me, a production of the North Carolina Bar Association's Labor and Employment Section. Find out more about NCBA's Labor and Employment section on our blog page at ncbarblog.com slash category slash LE and on the Labor and Employment section page at ncbar.org. You also can follow the NCBA on Twitter at ncbaorg. Until next time, we hope that everything works for you.